Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned The Amazing Spider Talk The Amazing Spider I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for the second episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, and in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. But now the Bronze Age is here in all of its so-called glory. Gwen has died at the hands of the Green Goblin, and Jerry Conway and comics would never be the same again. And as we've been teasing, we brought back the expert on this change in comics, the very man who kicked it off himself, none other than the legendary Jerry Conway. As always, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests like Jerry Conway that we have on the show and do all of our research. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help us continue... While also getting amazing Bose's content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, why don't you head on over to our show notes, they're right there in your podcast, and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team like so many other awesome people have. But enough of our advertising, nothing will ever be the same again in comics once we enter the Bronze Age. Things are about to get decidedly weirder in the world of Spider-Man, so we hope you enjoy our episode entitled, you guessed it, the Bronze Age. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, it's me, Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm joined by Mark again. But we're also joined by the legendary Jerry Conway. You know him as the co-creator of The Punisher, Firestorm, and for our intents and purposes, the creator of The Bronze Age via the death of Gwen Stacy. Welcome back to the show, Jerry. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Well, uh, Jerry, you know, on this season of our show, we've been talking about the Bronze Age, and uh, if the listeners tuned in, our last episode was a bit of a replay of our episode with you talking about the death of Gwen. So we're not going to talk about that so much today, 
we want to talk about the Bronze Age itself. So let's start things off. As a comic book creator, what does the term Bronze Age mean to you? And how do, how do you think your definition of it compares with uh, how the industry defines it? The, the, these kinds of definitions or, or uh, a, a quote, ages are all very uh, idiosyncratic and personal. I, I was talking with my wife about it an hour or so ago. And I basically said, well, you know, the golden age is basically the 1940s, the silver age is the 60s, the bronze age is the 70s. Uh, and you can start demarcate, you know, when and when they begin or when they uh, they end. That's kind of a personal taste sort of thing. I was, I had never really thought, you know, of, of the Gwen Stacy story as being, quote, the beginning of the Bronze Age. Uh, but I think around that time, I mean, we, we started to see the influence of a new generation of creators uh, who had a different approach to the material uh, that was substantially creatively different from the prior era. So I, w- I would say that's that's how you would define an age. You know, when when people as a group, you know, as creators as a group, have a have a coming of age, so to speak. You know, they, they start to influence more than just a handful of books, their, their influence expands out over uh, the entire range of stories that are done. Now, Jerry, I know you, you just said basically that you, you don't personally look at the death of Gwen as the start of the Bronze Age, but yet so many people do. And I'm curious, <laughs> I, I mean, why, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think so many people look at that story specifically as the entry, as like a defining entry point for, the, for this era? Well, it's for one thing. It's an easy it's an easy call because it's it was such a dramatic uh, had such a dramatic impact. Uh, although that I don't think that was as obvious at the time. You know, these are the kinds of things that you look at in retrospect and say, "Oh, yeah, that that was important." Uh, we knew we were doing a story <clears throat> that was important, but we didn't think we were like changing any ground rules. But in a sense, we kind of did uh, because the ground rules up to that point would have led you to believe a certain kind of story would occur with these premises, right? That, that a, a, a character is captured, you know, the Spider-Man is, in, is rushing to the rescue, you know, the, the, the villain, you know, has a, uh, a, a moment of threat, you know, and that, that would all be resolved in a certain predictable way. And this story basically threw that predictable uh, uh, formula out the window. In a real sense, though, I was simply following the path, I thought, that had been laid out by Stan and other writers before me. And other writers and artists that followed me simply were following that path, too, in their own way. And my story simply acted maybe as a, uh, you know, as a, as a punctuation mark, but it, but it wasn't like it, I don't think it inspired people to go off and do something that they would not have otherwise done. <clears throat> I think we all would have moved in those directions anyway. Uh, that was the general direction my generation of creators was going. You know, people like Steve Gerber, I, I doubt that S- Steve was heavily influenced by that particular story. But he and I shared a similar sensibility because we came from, you know, a similar readership background, a, s- a similar taste uh, a similar uh, life experience at that moment in history. So, you know, that would move 
him in the same, same sort of direction that I was moving. Uh, if I got there first, it was simply an accident, but you know, not like I was doing anything that, that somebody else would not have done, you know, six months later, you know, or, or, uh, two months earlier if, if things had gone differently. You said that, um, uh, you know, the bronze age is defined by a new kind of generation of writers coming on <coughs> these books and comics. What topics do you think that that generation, which I imagine you include yourself in despite your youth at the time. Yes. What kind of topics do you think those writers were mainly interested in, te- in working their way through in, through comics? Right, right. Well, I think we were all uh, deeply affected by the Vietnam War. I mean, that's, that's one thing, which, which was a, a major cultural turning point for, for, for American society. I mean, in the same way that, that, that my story uh, could be said to have broken the rules of what a heroic story was supposed to be, the Vietnam War broke the rules of what America, how, how we in, in the counterculture, let's say, which is what primarily drives uh, artistic expression as counterculture forces. But what we in the counterculture, how we defined America, you know, if you think of the 1940s, the, the the counterculture in the 1940s saw America as a beacon of hope, right? You know, it was a country that was uh, striving for uh, to be better than it was, you know, to, to work together, you know, to, to, to rise up, you know, to join forces. All of that was part and parcel of both uh, the response to the Depression and World War II. Then in the late 60s, I mean, the, the late 50s through the, through the 60s, you had this other kind of countercultural view of, uh, uh, of America and of culture of, you know, the, 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 uh, the strivers, you know, for uh, uh, justice, you know, and for, for uh, uh, reaching for the stars and, you know, the, the, the new frontier, you know, all of that Kennedy-esque sort of stuff that, that is sort of really represented by the Julie Schwartz uh, Silver Age books, you know, of, of really hopeful, you know, uh, forward-looking, even the, even the early uh, Kirby and, and, and uh, Lee superhero work is all very, very positive, very pro-America, you know, that sort of thing. By the late 60s, though, you were, the, the people who were coming of age as uh, countercultural artistic voices were deeply traumatized by the Vietnam War, which sort of revealed America as being no better than any other country, you know, that, that we could make horrible mistakes and be the bad guys. And there's a famous quote from Joan Baez, the uh, folk singer. I, I believe I'm quoting her uh, correctly. She, she said, and it was really very uh, provocative for her to say it, but she said, you have to realize, in Vietnam, we're the Germans. And for, uh, for anyone in America to make a statement like that in 1970 or 1969, whenever it was that she said it, uh, was, was like mind boggling. <laughs> you know, to, to, now, now today we, we were all very cynical, you know, our, our society is in terrible shape. Uh, we all have a very grim view of, of, of American, uh, uh, exceptionalism, but that wasn't true 
1964, let's say, or 1965. But by 1972 or 73, we were all pretty cynical and grim. And that was the voice of my generation, you know, the, the people my age and older, uh, that was sort of expressed through the Bronze Age. That, that, would, that would be why I would say you can't really point to my story. My story is a response, you know, the, the Gwen Stacy story, as much as anything else, is a response to the same cultural milieu that everyone else was responding to that ended up creating the Bronze Age ethos. Now, as a, as a writer, I mean, you, you, when you've been on the show in the past, you, you've talked about your, your reverence for the stories that preceded you as it relates to Spider-Man. So how, how, did, how did you balance... I guess, kind of wanting to look back and and pay homage to the stories of yesteryear while still trying to explore these new ideas that were driving the industry at this time. Well, I was fortunate in that I was uh, still basically a kid (laughs) and as such was not as thoughtful as I am today. (laughs) So my my self-perception of what I was doing was that I was trying to tell the stories the kind of stories that I had read as a kid, but I was in effect filtering them through the uh, the tastes, you know, that I was, you know, had developed through the culture that I was part of. You know, this is this is also the era of the Godfather, Chinatown. Uh, you know, just think about the, the experience of watching those movies and and how that would influence you as a creator. So while I was, I, I what my my the easiest answer is that I was not conscious of trying to make a statement. You know, I was a fairly unconscious writer for most of my 20s. Much of, much of what I did was uh, uh, subliminal, even to me. You know, I would, I would go back now and I look at it and go, whoa, you know, <laughs> see what I was doing there. And in some cases, it, it, it was a, a complete unconscious move. Uh, in the famous snap, you know, in the Gwen Stacy story, I had what I thought was my conscious reasons for doing it, but then I also recognized there were, were unconscious uh, motivations as well. But those unconscious motivations were influenced by, you know, my cultural uh, environment, you know, and, and the, the world that I was living in, you know, and the, and the things that I was trying to work through myself as a young adult trying to make sense of the world. And that was probably true of my, my fellow creators as well, because None of us, you know, we were all we were all comic book nerds. We're all people who were, you know, trying to make a living. A also trying to do good stories and do good work, and we're all filtering that through our personal experiences and our uh, and the and the world that we're fa- we're finding ourselves in. How do you feel like your youth affected these stories? I mean, I'm sure there's, there's no way we could remove that youthfulness from them. But do you like look back at them and think? If I was more mature, I would have changed this, or I'm so glad I was young because it brought this out. I, I, there's two, I have two responses when I read my stuff from that era. For, I have a cringe response because uh, I see things that I would never do today just from a technical point of view. Uh, I never, you know, I, I, I actually have more of a, I'm more critical of my work from a technical standpoint than I am from a emotional or quality of, of, of story point of view. I don't think I would, I think that the, the youthfulness and my naivete and my lack of experience all worked in my advantage because I didn't know that I, sh- that I shouldn't try certain things. You know, one of the worst things that happens to you as you get older is that you start closing off doors. You know, you say, well, that didn't work, you know, so I won't try that again. 
And the truth is you should never close the door. You know, you should always be willing to make mistakes. You should always be willing to uh, break things down. And you, it's just that as you get older, you have to kind of consciously do that. But when you're in your early 20s and you don't know any better, you're just doing it naturally. <laughs> so so I'm, I, I, as I say, I think the things that I'm, I find cringeworthy in my work is, you know, the technical clumsiness of some things. And uh, in some cases, just the, the sheer lack of experience that, that makes some of, my, some of my writing kind of offensive to me today. You know, like my, the way I would wrote, uh, that I wrote black characters, for example, embarrasses the hell out of me now. Uh, but I was doing, you know, what I, what I thought was an, a, a sympathetic and an advanced, you know, and a socially conscious kind of writing at the time, but didn't have the life experience to really, you know, manage it in, a, in a, uh, an appropriate way. You know, it's more, it's more a question of balancing good intentions versus technical skills. And when I, when I read the, the, uh, the Gwen Stacy story today, I'm actually struck by how technically accomplished it is. And it's, it's one of the rare stories from that era that, that I actually would be proud to see published, you know, new today. But there are a lot of stories from that era that I just, I just hope nobody ever reads. <laughs> <laughs> well, oops, we're still reading them, Jerry. Uh. <laughs> yeah, now with digital comics, they're, they're, they're even more visible. So <laughs> you can't escape. So, I mean, kind of, again, looking a little more broadly here, I mean, so the ideas that we've been talking about, the themes that have kind of come from this era, uh, especially in terms of like the darker content, the the more character driven stories. I mean, how how do you feel that's been a benefit to comics in the industry? Like how 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 has that exactly moved things forward, in your opinion? Oh, it's. I think it's had a tremendous impact because if, I, I'm a. As I say, I'm a comics nerd, so I, I'm always reading comics. I, I read a lot of them today. Uh, I still uh, enjoy most material, although I, I tend towards more of the um, uh, the independent comics than the, the major two. But I, I look back and I also reread the comics that I grew up on, you know, the comics from the late 50s, the 60s. And big difference that I think between the material that we call the Silver Age material is that it was aspirational towards a certain kind of story. It didn't actually achieve those kinds of stories, but it sort of opened the door for those stories. You know, if you reread Kirby and, and, uh, 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 and Ditko and Lee, uh, you reread their work today, it's all really wonderful stuff. I mean, there's no, no criticism intended of this, but it is very shallow compared to the work that came out in the 70s and uh, early 80s. And that's not to say that, that it wasn't leaps and bounds over what had gone before, because it was. Uh, it's just that it was more like pointing in the direction that you could go. Stan created a, a visual, uh, you know, a, a storytelling style that worked really well, but he didn't take it very far. And that, I think, is uh, what we did in the 70s. So we, we built on that, and that building on it helped to create uh, a, a real foundation for writers who came after us and artists who came after us to really develop that material. On, on the other hand, you know, that era was famous for, you know, like, obviously, you know, things like you did, like killing off a character or creating a violent, dark, edgy character like the Punisher. Uh, mm -hmm. But we would have a ton of other creators just kind of 
whether they copied that idea or it was just kind of the idea of the day, used that a lot in that yeah. era. Yeah. How do you feel uh, like the Bronze Age, you know, has been used throughout the years in the negative? Do you feel like it's it's used by, as a crutch by some creators? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I, the the truth is that all this stuff. The, the the science fiction writer uh, Theodore Sturgeon once said that ninety percent of everything is crap. <laughs> and I think that that's true. You know, I mean, ninety percent of the material that came out in the Bronze Age is crap, and ninety percent of the material that came out in the Silver Age was crap, and ninety percent of the, <laughs> the Golden Age. What we tend to remember are the, the the stories that that worked well, you know, and the material that that worked well. But it's also true that we we have to remember when we went to excess, you know, and there was a certain, there was a, a real move to excess in the, uh, uh, the seventies, uh, which I think you could say kind of culminated with the death of Superman as the like ultimate expression of that kind of cynical, you know, use of material, uh, use of death as a, as a tool for, 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 uh, forced drama, you know, the death of Superman or the, the, the death of, uh, uh, Jason Todd or, uh, the killing joke, but all of that came after the bronze age, but it was sort of like a response to that kind of easy, easy storytelling move. You know, I, I, I sometimes feel bad when I, when I, when I hear people talking about the, the woman in the refrigerator trope, because in a, in a real sense, I started it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> But my story, I would like, I would like to think, wasn't, you know, the woman on the, in, the, in the refrigerator in that it wasn't a cheap attempt to gain some kind of uh, character growth for Peter Parker. It was a, a, a character growth for all the characters in the story, including and especially Mary Jane. So it wasn't, you know, it, it used to the same effect that these kind of tropes get used by people who are not really thinking it through. I don't know. You know, it's, there's a lot of crap that was done in the seventies. Part of it is, you know, both companies were expanding their lines, which means that you're stretching out the, the talent base to people who would not otherwise maybe have participated and probably shouldn't have, but Mm -hmm. you're also, you know, uh, trying new things and trying uh, new approaches that while they may fail on their own, might inspire somebody to do something better with that particular trope or story. If you could go back, would you, you know, in the death of Gwen's story, you know, speaking of women in refrigerators, would, would you go back and give Gwen more agency in that story? It's really hard to say. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're if, if I were, if I were writing a story like that today, it would be a very different story for the for the time and the and for the purpose of that story that was kind of the story that i told you know i mean i i I try not to second guess myself in terms of uh story choices uh because i i also don't know what my mindset would have been you know uh going back you know you you can't how do you how do you tell a story from that has affected so many other stories with the perspective of that story you know it's like Kurt Busiek did a wonderful job in Marvels where he uh, took the death of Gwen Stacy and really built it, you know, built a whole universe around it and created a whole storyline around it, showing the effect that it had on, on, on not just Peter, but on all the people in her life. 
And that, I think, was, you know, a good way to approach it. Almost by definition, because she was a victim in that story, if she's... I, I just wouldn't know how to approach it. I, I just... And that, that's probably a shallowness on my part. So, Jerry, I mean... Just, just to kind of bring this back specifically to the lens of Spider-Man here, um, I mean, not to play what if here, I guess, but, you know, when, when you talk about some of the big Bronze Age runs in terms of, like, you know, again, the darker themes and everything, you know, I think people often come back to, like, what Frank Miller did with Daredevil or in later Batman and also Denny O'Neill and his Batman kind of really changing the the core of these characters in a way that reflected kind of the, the, it was quintessential of the era in a lot of ways given given how who spider-man is i mean could is is a evolution for a character like that even feasible in your mind i mean or is there always going to be a little bit of brightness to spider-man that will keep keep him from going full frank miller i guess or is it just because frank miller never wrote spider-man <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i i don't think there is a way to make spider-man dark you know i mean other than changing the character uh even even in the depths of his despair you know over the death of glenn there was still th- that fundamental optimistic character that uh ditko and stan displayed in the seminal master planner storyline you know when uh which which for me has always been the, the one of the key moments of of spider-man uh when he's buried under tons of, of rock you know and he's uh faced with uh uh failure but he still rises up you know he still overcomes and he doesn't overcome because of some optimism within him per se but because of his sense of obligation and, and responsibility, the, and when you feel that sense of obligation and responsibility, unless you're unless you're uh, going to go crazy, you have to balance it off with some sense of perspective. You know that uh, while you're going to do the best you can, you may not always succeed, and that gives him a I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's not optimistic per se, but it's. It's kind of the next best thing. I don't know how I can really express it. For me, the, I, I, I'm a fairly conservative person in terms of how I approach characters. And by that, I mean not like conservative as, as socially conservative. I mean, I try to find out what is the core aspect of the character. And I don't want to change that. Uh, so for me, Spider-Man should always be this guy who is doing the best he can <laughs> in crappy circumstances with the world throwing tremendous shit at him and he acts like it doesn't bother him you know that's kind of who he is he's he puts his chin out and gets punched uh and then he puts his chin out again and he gets punched and he just keeps putting his chin out he just keeps pushing pushing on that's what makes him interesting to me as a character other people they, they come along and they 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 work on a character and they want to undermine whatever the core principle is of that character for their own artistic reasons, and that's that's great. Sometimes it works brilliantly, you know, as it does as it did when uh, Frank Miller, you know, redefined Daredevil and and redefined Batman. But he actually, what was clever about it was that he took core aspects of those characters and heightened them. He didn't change them, you know. Bruce Wayne uh, was an orphan whose parents uh, were killed before his eyes. Everybody kind of knew that, and everybody kind of knew that that would have an effect on him. But Miller was the guy who said, 
yeah, that's going to alienate him from anybody, from allowing him to ever get close to anyone ever, you know, because he's always going to have that fear of abandonment, you know, that fear of loss. And so he's going to become more and more dark and isolated as he gets older. That's a perfectly legitimate interpretation of Bruce Wayne, uh, of the core principle of the loner, you know, trying to make the world right after a terrible trauma. And the same thing with Matt Murdock. You know, Matt Murdock, you know, a guy who, you know, lost lost everything at a, at a young age, but got a compensating power. And then you add in the, the something which was only implied in the original uh, series, uh, which was his Catholicism. And you can really take that places. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of there. You know, it's kind of part of the, the, the character. Uh, what I don't like is when creators come along and deny the core aspect of the character and then uh, for their own purposes, you know, do something entirely different with it. And I think those those storylines tend to fail and fail miserably, and then we forget about them. So speaking of exactly that, you know, I, I like to say that every character kind of has like this, you know, ideal center, like the core, like you were saying, and it can mm-hmm. be stretched so far until it breaks eventually, whether you're moving it one way or, or another. And it seems like today the new thing is on these characters is to like push them to that breaking point and try to be sure not to cross over into it. So you yes. get like extreme takes on, you know, whoever it is. Like I'm thinking right now, it's like Dr. Strange, but he's in outer space or Dr. Strange, but he doesn't have magic, you know, or Spider-Man, but he's Dr. Octopus. Um, <laughs> you know, all of these things that just kind of push the characters to their limits. So speaking of like Spider-Man, like, are there any stories in your mind that either like push it that far in a good way or push it so far that it broke? Well, I really actually liked the whole Superior Spider-Man run. And I I liked it because it interrogated the basic idea of responsibility as seen through Peter Parker's eyes, but by putting it into the eyes of his arch enemy. And the idea that that youthful alienation, youthful uh, trauma, all of those things that Peter and Doc Ock had in common, you know, how those drive people to become the people they are. Those, that was an interesting way to do it. And by basically taking Peter out of the equation, you know, uh, for, for a couple of years, uh, it enabled, you know, Dan Slott to do something unique with the character that we all knew was going to eventually be rewound, you know. Uh, but it gave us, a, it gave us a, a unique perspective on the character. So I thought that was neat. Uh, what, what I don't like, for example, would be the way that Zack Snyder redefined Superman. That to me is, I mean, it's logical. You know, you can make an argument for what he did, uh, that a character who is, you know, an alien and raised in our paranoid society, you know, by, or a xenophobic society by, by a paranoid uh, p- parents, you know, you could actually see that that would make sense, that this would be the way you do it. But that's a fundamental break with the core vision of the character as a character who embodies small town American values and hope, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so unless you can find a way to redefine that and make it, uh, like I think, for example, as they did when they, they brought the earth to Superman over to our world and in whatever re, re, revision recently they, they, uh, DC did, 
they managed to to reinvigorate that character by giving him attachments, by giving him, you know, familial rela- uh, relationships that he has to deal with, and that that to me was a, a you know a smart way to to reinvigorate a character. So I guess, you know, as long as, as long as you have a clear sense of what made that character work in the first place and what you're doing with your story is interrogating that clear sense, then I think you can go anywhere, but you have to have that clear sense. And I think a lot of writers and artists don't always have that uh, clear understanding or they're going for shock value or they're just simply saying, "Well, what if we just turned it all upside down on its head, and uh, just seeing how see how that would work?" Those stories should be done in elsewhere, <laughs> elseworld, <laughs> world, uh, and, and great, you know, do it there, uh, do do those kinds of stories. But if you're doing the the mainstream version of a character, it should be something close to the core version. Well, it's like taking away the wrong lesson from the Gwen Stacy storyline. Which, oh yeah, which is like, if that was the, a positive for Spider-Man, I'll do something to that level. And often people, times people go too far with it. Well, I mean, it's misunderstanding what the what the purpose of the story was, you know, which was to obviously, I mean, the the, the whole goal with with that story was to a to shake up the book, to make readers feel that there's a there's a sense of consequence to, to what stories they read. So that's that's the first level. But then the, 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 the internal level was to have Peter basically face his greatest fear, you know, which is failing to save someone that he loves. Once he's taken on the, the, that, that with great power comes great responsibility, you know, the burden of that is that, you're, that unless, uh, unless you have a miraculous life, you are eventually going to fail. You know, you're going to fail spectacularly. Uh, and the question is, does that break you or does it make you stronger? That's a moral and, and ethical story that, that you need to be able to tell for a character who takes on that kind of burden. Other writers you know, or, or artists might just say, oh, well, let's, let's put this character through a lot of shit and then have him you know, heroically come out at the other side. But for some other characters, that doesn't work. You know what really worked really well, I thought was, for example, a, a similar kind of story in a way. Uh, but with very different dynamics was the demon in a bottle storyline that Denny O'Neill did with Iron Man, because it kind of worked to the basic premise of Tony Stark, which is that he's a broken man on some level. You know, he's a, he, the 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 the, uh, uh, the metaphor of the the, the shrapnel on the heart uh, that that worked so well for Tony Stark for many years. You know, was the idea that that on the surface he's this, you know tremendously powerful character, but he's got a weak heart. He's got a broken heart. Demon in the Bottle is a way to create, to, to, to do that story in a more, quote, realistic way, but it's the same story, you know. It's the same weakness inside the strong man, and how you, how you challenge your character is by going to that core weakness or that core premise, and then see how... Anyway, I'm babbling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Well, to to the point of like kind of these dramatic evolutions, and in, in terms of focusing on a character that you created, I'm curious to hear what you think about what has happened with the Punisher 
over the years because i mean here was this guy i mean i know that he he started out as basically the the goon for the jackal and you know it wasn't until you saw him on the page that you realized you had something there with him yeah um but i mean you know here's this guy like if you look at like the punisher max series for example i mean he's like decapitating people and (laughs) feeding them the bears and stuff like that i mean like could you have ever imagined that this character i mean he he was true probably the first true anti-hero in comics but i mean to go that far into like the realm of darkness i mean like what what do you think about that (laughs) well i I, the punisher is one of these great rorschach tests I've, i've used that phrase before is that uh, every creator who comes onto that book brings their own take on the character. And as long as you've got the basic uh, premise of a guy who, who was a representative of the system, you know, I mean, uh, he was a soldier who was let down by the system, you know, through the death of his family, uh, and now operates outside the system, taking the law into his own hands, you can go anywhere. Uh, it's, it's, he's not that deep a character. (laughs) And then the the amazing thing is that people are able that, that no matter how wildly he goes off into these different things, as you say, the Punisher Max series or the, the series where he, he gets basically almost superpowers, you know, becomes war machine. I mean, all these different kinds of crazy things, it, it still goes back to that core character. And as long as you're true to that, to that sense of uh, the, the heartbreak at the at the at the core of what drives him, you know, the fact that, that his wound will never be healed, that he that no matter how many people he takes his vengeance on and punishes, uh, it's never going to be enough. You can take him in all kinds of directions and not actually damage the character uh, because you can always pull it back. You can always shift it sideways. You can move him from from a, a semi-realistic environment to a fantastic environment back and forth. Well, very cool. Uh, Jerry, as a final question with you on the show here, I, I'm, I'm curious, we're going to be doing a bunch of episodes on the Bronze Age, and one of the things we're going to highlight is kind of some of the silliness of the Bronze oh, yeah. Age. You know, like, <laughs> you've got so many goofy villains and stuff that were introduced, whether it's, you know, um, I mean, even just before your time, like the Gibbon, uh, given, you know, <laughs> um, yes. you know and, and cyclone and even, even the jackal is, you know, like a guy in a mm-hmm. green furry outfit. Um, I, I'm guess I'm curious, you know, yeah. you've got a story that's as dark and, and meaningful as something like the death of Gwen. And then you've got a, a lot of these kind of other very light stories that kind of push Spider-Man's kind of silliness in another direction. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to how, those ideas kind of coexisted in this in this Bronze Age. Like, how did they all come from like one guy's mind? You know? <laughs> well, I, I I have a fundamental sense of absurdity <laughs> that I can't stop. Like, I, I a joke is very, is very rarely far from my uh, from my mind about almost anything I I do. I see the absurdity of it, and I also really li- liked that aspect of Spider Man when I when I was a kid uh, reading the books. I mean. One of my favorite Spider-Man stories, uh, which was like the ultimate in absurdity, was the Spider Slayer stories, where you had J. Jonah Jameson's face on a on a uh, a robot attacking Spider-Man. Remember that? I mean, it's like how silly, and he's like joyously playing with the jo- the, the the joysticks, you know. And oh my God, this is so great! I'm going to kill Spider-Man. Uh, I mean, it's, it, there was always a sense of silliness and absurdity 
that uh, was inherent in all of those stories. Uh, Doc Ock is a silly, silly idea. When you come right down to it, you know, it's a fat guy with, with robot arms. Sandman, <laughs> you know, Sandman, silly. Uh, the Vulture, uh, uh, silly. So I, I always had that sense in my own head, you know, that, that there was a silliness to this stuff that I really enjoyed. But I also saw that you needed to balance it with, you know, real problems that were uh, serious for Peter. It's possible to to recognize that something is is, uh, deadly serious to the people involved while also being silly. You know, uh, and I think that was the, that was what I was trying to do if I, to the extent that I had any conscious awareness of what I was trying to do. It's one of my favorite titles is still to this day, you know, if I kill me, will I die? Uh, because, <laughs> because it's like it's a real serious problem. You know? He's really it's really serious, but it's also so silly. You know, I mean, he's fighting himself. That's just silly. But it, but it's serious, you know, uh, and that's kind of life, you know. If you, if you step back from almost anything that happens to you, I mean, when when I injure myself, you know, like when I do something really stupid and bang myself, uh, like walking into a wall or some something else like that, my first reaction, of course, is pain, and you know, going ow, oh no, oh, f-, you know, and, and and like cursing, and and then I start laughing. I almost invariably start laughing because it was so dumb, what I did. And I see the absurdity of it. And you've got to be able to do that. You know, you can't just walk around brooding and grim all the time. Uh, and, and I think that's was one of the, the charms of Spider-Man for me. Well, I could think of no better way to end it. That's, uh, thank you for that wonderful insight. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks again, Jerry, for joining us for the show. You bet. It was always it was ever a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for our second episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Dan, our next episode will be out in a few. What's the title of that show? It's going to be called The Bronze Age Bums. Yes, this time we're going to be looking at all the new... The bad guys. Yes, the bad guys. And man, do we have some great ones in this season of the show. It'd be impossible to undersell just how many odd villains there were in this era from the gibbon to Mindworm and back we'll be talking about all of them i mean maybe even some of them will show up dan <laughs> oh boy get ready for the voices half hour here we go <laughs> i gotta i gotta lubricate my vocal cords dan uh <laughs> no why why would you be lubricating your vocal cords mark you're right. I'm just going to have to make room in my back den area here to fit all of the great personalities that are going to be here. <laughs> it's a good thing you're moving soon. Exactly. More more room for the characters of Spider-Man yesteryear. Uh, also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week. For a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 14, also known as issue 815, there's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of this new run. Remember, for $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, swarm b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork this season from none other than Barry Kitson. Awesome, Mark. Also, everyone at home, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where they're talking about the Puma in Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 7, 
That's the honeymoon issue that I picked up on my honeymoon. Look at that. Oh, the coincidentalness of it all. It's so much coincidence, we don't even know what to do with it all. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to our Spider-Man talking community as you're on your way to check out the link to our Patreon feed. There's just so much to do, Mark. There's so much. So much social media. So much social media, Mark, that we're going to get some more social media. Where can we find you on the social media? Well, of course, my primary social media account these days is on the Twitter at ChasingASMblog where, you know, I'm trying not to let uh, Twitter destroy me as it is currently destroying society. Uh, Also, less social media-y and more traditional media. You can buy my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, anywhere books are sold. What about you, Dan? Remember when we used to ban books as a society as though books would ruin... Uh, culture could we are so far from that era, but I I'm sure your book would be banned if, if we still lived in that time and place. Oh, absolutely! It's a it's a pile of trash. So buy it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course you can find me on Twitter too. I'm at at sup spider talk where I'm talking about Spider Man all the live long day and dropping all kinds of celebrity names to make Mark jealous. (laughs) (laughs) You have the life, man. You have the life. (laughs) Of course I do. But that life wouldn't be complete without a motto backing it up. And Mark, what motto is that that keeps me on the right path? That motto, of course, is with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 